श्री सचिनंदन गौर हरि की जय श्री श्री गोनितनंद की जय श्री हरि नाम प्रभु की जय गौर भक्तवृंद की जय गौर प्रणाम सो गुड मॉर्निंग ओके प्रणाम like it happened yesterday as i told you i i'm supposed to talk about guru tatva yesterday i was kind of doubting because so many topics came and i felt invited compelled to go in some other directions and today's not an exception to that rule <laughs> after some of the discussions that have transpired during the the lectures and during the individual meetings with with some of you uh so many things to talk about and so many necessities so to say to address that each one of them will require separate retreat seminar lifetime probably and it's okay again we have an eternity on our side so no rush <laughs> uh, bhakti is the means and bhakti is the goal so we don't need to go anywhere we are already doing what we want to do for eternity so we are not after living samsara or mukti or all that stuff but we are just happy to continue doing bhakti susukam kartama bhaya the process so happy that where do you want to go <laughs> So if destiny providence wants us to meet in other retreat for 108 more lifetimes I'm open to that no problem <laughs> you can come with my participation <laughs> So but anyhow I'll try to share some thoughts on guru tattva and, and approaches pitfalls and potentials as they were nicely depicted that um so yesterday we touched upon a little bit probably more from the perspective of a disciple and the duty of the disciple and, and how we have to take care of not falling into over idealizing and over expectations and uh, and in that connection forcing ourselves to see guru asutam bhagavad nitya sida topmost paramahamsa on planet earth or whatever uh, and instead trying to embrace a more human realistic faith which doesn't need to make any everyone a superhero for it to be sustained uh, because again if we make everyone a superhero we basically dehumanizing people uh, and that's quite impersonal mm. um, so in that connection we share about different ideas why sometimes we as students may have the need unconsciously sometimes in the in the codependent template sometimes trying to avoid taking responsibility for our own lives and just praising someone so much that my life is on you you tell me what to do how to think what to eat how to comb my hair whatever which style of sikha should i have and i do it and if something goes wrong it's your fault not mine <laughs> things like that no? so <clears throat> so it's important that we embrace a more realistic pattern where we're not necessarily we also mentioned have not necessarily every single guru will be of that caliber and it's okay <laughs> not necessarily every disciple will be of the caliber of dhruva maharaj so we gave that example and it's okay 
it's okay to embrace reality as it is. Shiloh Prabhupada published Bhagavad Gita as it is, but not only Bhagavad Gita has to be as it is, everything has to be as it is. No, especially beginning with ourselves, ourselves as it as we are, no, or as all that we can be, whether it begins with as we are right now in the God bless this mess chapter of our lives. <laughs> no? That was such a nice quote I found in there. <laughs> yeah. I remember I went to that program, everyone was like sharing their thoughts or their reason. So this program, this was the highlight. Was, my highlight was that sign that is over there in the kitchen. God bless this mess. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so today I like to talk a few words on Guru Tattva, but maybe from another perspective. And that's in connection to some points that I... <coughs> Sorry, I mentioned in my book that the subtitle of my book is uh, of radical personalism is revival manifesto for proactive devotion. And for me, each of those four words are very important. Even the word for <laughs> want to speak of all, all of all the other ones. Uh, and they, each of them will require lots of time to unpack, but at least two words that are very crucial for me are revival and proactive. Mm -hmm. So for me, revival, of course, the very word revival implies the need for reviving something. Not something needs to be uh, injected with, with, with new life. And when I say all the things in connection to our community, I'm not implying that the, the very sarup, the very essence of Christian consciousness is devoid of life. That's, that's totally uh, contrary to what what Christian consciousness actually is. No? Christian consciousness implies exactly that. No? Consciousness, it's a type of flow in which we are constantly connected with that wave called Krishna. So Christian consciousness is in, in its very essence is something completely alive. Mm -hmm. Aliveness is the main quality of our tradition in its essence by the current state of the community may be something different from the very essence of our lineage. So the, 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 the challenge for every member of the lineage is how we continue aligning ourselves with the essence of our tradition. The essence is always life, always evolving. As I like to say, Krishna is always becoming more Krishna. It's not that Krishna is something that is called Krishna and that's it. He can no longer upgrade his Krishnahood. So to say. <laughs> no. In fact, Mahaprabhu for our for us, I mean for me, hopefully for us, is Krishna 2.0. It's Krishna upgraded. Krishna finds himself certain limitations in Brajan in Krishna Lila, and he wants to take some experience and it's like Gaur Hari manifests Krishna as all that Krishna can be. So I like to say Krishna is the supreme personality of Godhead, Mahaprabhu is the supreme personality of Krishna. <laughs> and I won't go in that direction. That's a dangerous journey for me because I will stop talking all that I have to talk about and I will start talking about Mahaprabhu. And that's for another. <laughs> it's a very tempting portal, I can tell you. So, so that's the essence of our tradition. Very tempting, very dynamic, very alive. But sometimes the, the, the historical unfolding of, of a community may get, as, as Jai Jaina was saying yesterday, we have these cycles of creation, maintenance, dissolution, stagnation, and all this stuff. And sometimes a movement, the, the external um, uh, 
packaging, so to say, of a particular movement may, may found itself in certain collective crisis, so to say. Not only on individual level, we have our crisis, but sometimes we go through collective crisis as a community. And again, it's okay. No, I mean, I'm not saying let's be as much as in crisis as we can, but <laughs> if crisis knock the door, okay. Crisis is not a bad word. No? Turning, technically speaking, the word crisis means turning decisive point. Has nothing to do with something wrong. Turning decisive point, in which whatever you decide at that point will affect crucially the future unfolding of that. So of course it takes lots of responsibility. You know, oh, whatever I do here will affect my life forever. So I have to be quite introspective, thoughtful about what's my next step because from that so many things will unfold in one direction or another. So. <clears throat> I personally feel and try to make hopefully some some type of sober case for the idea that I consider that Gaudiya Vaishnavism, not only Gaudiya Vaishnavism, so many other movements, but we happen to be Gaudiya Vaishnavs, so let's address and let's begin at home. Uh, we are in some, some considerable crisis in terms of how to unfold and how to continue in a way that is sustainable. And probably the implications of that is we need a revival. And revival either means some anarchic revolution, let's burn everything and protest <laughs> and be resentful. I, I was an anarchist in my teenage years, so I already had my, my, my portion of that. But actually we are, revival means again, no? be, remind, remind each other of what we are here for and what's the nature of Christian consciousness is a dynamic unfolding eternally. And, and let's continue in connection with that, the, ne the necessity of the times in connection to the internal nature of our tradition, which is again, ever evolving, ever evolving. Krishna consciousness is never the same after one second. It's something new. That's the nature of transcendence. Krishna, Krishna, says, Krishna becomes more beautiful at every moment. And the love and dedication of the devotees increase proportionately to how much Krishna's beauty increases. And he says, so a competition starts between the two of them in which none of the two parts accept defeat. <laughs> so that implies eternally they are wrestling, in, so to say. <laughs> Krishna's beauty increases, the devotee's dedication increases, and that dedication that goes to him makes him more beautiful. Actually, Krishna becomes more and more beautiful because of the amount of love he's receiving. But that beauty that is this byproduct of that love increases that love. No? So it's kind of a self-nurturing cycle which has no end. It's like a spiral. It's not just a circle, but a spiral which every time becomes more, more embracing. Jaijanga no? was talking a lot yesterday about circles. And of course, our the ultimate realities, um, the ultimate, uh, ultimate conception is reality is a circle, a circle dance to be more precise. I remember when I visited uh, Richard Rohr in New Mexico some months ago. That's another retreat in itself to show what happened there. But <laughs> we were talking about, that. again, we were sharing notes. And he was like, okay, in Christianity, we consider the ultimate reality is a circular dance. And I was like, uh, he even quoted the Greek term perichoresis that they used for that. And that means circular dance. Reality is a 
constant dynamic movement and flow of celebration. And he started to describe that. And I was like, have you been reading Rasa Panchadiai recently? <laughs> <laughs> no? anyway, we have our perichoresis. We call it Rasa Lila, you know? circular dance. That's the <laughs> ultimate reality. So anyhow, the point is that that's how reality moves. It's in constant movement and dancing and celebration and unfolding. So we are representatives of that movement. So how much we are moving. Krishna consciousness movement. Movement doesn't mean a building. Movement means something is moving. <laughs> Whatever is moving starts moving inside. That's how this movement started. Gaudiya Sampradaya started with Mahaprabhu. But Mahaprabhu never intended. I will... I will, I will I have a master plan for creating a religion. Mahabharu never thought about that. He was just, in the words of Srila Maharaj, a golden volcano of divine love. That was his strategy, <laughs> erupting at every step. <laughs> so much was moving inside of him. The whole movement was in his heart that eventually it created another type of movement outside. But the outside movement has to reflect the inside movement. If not, the movement stops having its, rendering its purpose. So Mahaprabhu started the movement in the sense of so much was happening in his heart that he couldn't contain himself and he started to move. No? He started to celebrate his inner movement by external movement, by dancing, by singing, by celebrating, by Sankirtan. And that external movement created another <laughs> type of movement in time. So we call Krishna consciousness movement, <clears throat> Gaudiya Sampradaya. So, <clears throat> but again, the question is, and the question, this question is for every generation. Again, this is not like, okay, this is the duty of our generation to ask the, this question. The question of, the duty of every generation is to over and over again ask this question, probably on a daily basis. How we are, how are our external movement is representing the internal movement, or how much internal movement is going on in our own hearts to begin with? <laughs> how much Christian consciousness is becoming all that it can be? Or it's just, as I put in my book, we are, it's just a bonsai version of it. I talk in my book about bonsai Gaudiya Vaishnavism. <laughs> you know what's a bonsai, right? So no. it's like a, you don't know. Bonsai tree. Bonsai tree? No, don't know. Bonsai. You know. No, I don't. I really? Don't know. <laughs> hey, Jaga, you know more words than all of us put no. together. <laughs> you say misanthropic and you don't know what's a bonsai. <laughs> yeah, I would say. I would say. So what's a bonsai, please? It's Let's cool Jajagana Prabhu. It's a tree that you that you can cultivate. It's, its roots are constricted to the point that it can't become a full tree mm -hmm. and it becomes like warped and it's like an artificial beauty. It's a miniature tree. It's a miniature tree. So it's a, my point is the tree has a potential to grow in a certain way, but you don't allow that to happen by submitting the tree to certain Extreme. boxes or parameters. You are not alone. So some other people doesn't know also. No problem. <laughs> it's trained by wires though. So it's restricted for literally decades to grow in a very specific way. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, if you want to be more bizarre, people do that bonsai technique with animals also, but that's even more weird. So I won't go there. I mean, we do that with ourselves in so many ways. That's my point. No? Even we don't enter into a physical box and remain like this size, we enter into so many boxes and become, remain bonsai version of ourselves. No? So sometimes we, we project our own bonsai-ness <laughs> into the movement we are being part of. So Krishna consciousness is, uh, has a potential of a giant, but somehow can become restricted in, its, in the way it's being represented. Uh, and in that connection, I mentioned we may be embracing a bonsai version of a, of a potential giant, basically. And that's not the idea. Again, that's where we are becoming. And we may be just participating in a movement, but for the wrong reasons that can happen. I mentioned that in my book as well. The, the thing is not so much staying as a Gaudiya Vaishnava or leaving Gaudiya Vaishnavism, but staying for the right reasons. Because we can continue in a movement for the wrong reasons also. That's pretty delicate and dangerous. So again, some words in connection to this point of revival, and I'm gradually connecting this with Guru Tattva, hopefully, so pray for me. <laughs> So we need some revival, and sometimes the revival means we need a new version of it, a new way of understanding, or sometimes certain structures, and not necessarily external, but ways of conceiving stuff, they need to collapse. Sometimes we may struggle to keep the structures together, and it may be a noble effort, but in some situations, the healthy thing is allow that to go back to the earth, so to say. <laughs> And with this, I'm not giving any prophecy like everything will burn to ashes and we'll begin from scratch. But my point is just re let's remain open to accept when some things need to collapse or they, they need to die. As we were talking the other day, you know, Krishna, uh, I was not Krishna, I went Brahma. to Krishna and Arjuna. You were giving which example was? Brahma. Oh, Brahma, yes, yeah, thank you. Krishna telling Brahma, well, the best thing you can possibly do is to die. But not physically, a more difficult death. <laughs> Die to a way of thinking. Like I was telling the other day, I think, I don't know who I talked with many people, but I was talking with Richard Rohr again, and we were talking about addiction and how different people have different addictions. And he told me, but there's one addiction that we all share unanimously, and that's the topmost one. I was like, wow, let's see which one. Let's see how I'm breaking one of the four wrecks in terms of addiction, <laughs> intoxication. He said, the main addiction we all share is addiction to our own thoughts, to our way of thinking. And there is even an, an statistics and research done that on a daily basis, on a good day, <laughs> all of us are uh, willing to question our own thoughts maximum 5% on a good day. On a shiny retreat day, like probably today, <laughs> no? good environment, some feedback there, 5%. That's basically zero, almost. <laughs> That's closer to zero than to 100%, just to be generous in the description. So, so we, we may be quite, 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 quite addicted to that. And, and again, sometimes we need some of those <clears throat> structures to collapse for us to to realize there is another way of, 
of being a Gaudiya. There's another way of, 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 of leaving the tradition. Because if not, as well, the Bamala once told me, our leaving the tradition from that bonsai constricted place will look more like leaving. I'm leaving the tradition. Although it's same time leaving the tradition, I'm here. No, no, it seems like you are leaving. You are going out of the place. You're not really, we are not really participating. So, so I call that revival, and I also use the term proactive. With proactive means I'm acting now with some clear concern for what's going on in the future and trying to anticipate what's going on so we don't wait for a further collapse to say, so what to do now? No. Mm -hmm. Like if you know, I don't know, in certain cities there, there may be some earthquake, so you won't wait for an earthquake to prepare the city for the earthquake. That's not very smart. <laughs> so you have to be proactive. You have to be preventive and, and, and construct stuff. So whenever the earthquake comes, okay, we were somehow prepared. So proactive basically has to do with that. I call it my book, Anticipatory Gaudiya Vaishnavism. <laughs> how to anticipate things. You, you are not just wait to, for everything to happen and, okay, what to do now? You have to anticipate reality as much as we can, of course. We cannot anticipate everything, and we love to have patience with mystery. <laughs> no, let's control the future and anticipate everything, but on some level, we have to be. We have to be cautious and proactive and deal with some of the situations that are at present affecting our tradition, as we were talking these days. There is considerable unresolved, unhealed issues and so many layers of our community. I talk in my book on, on the collective unconscious of the Gaudiya Sampradaya, <laughs> going to Jungian terms, like there's lots of shadow work to be done and exploring and doing descent work, no? which was the face of the deep depth, you say yesterday, not trying to confront that. No? Sometimes we are lots about transcending and ascending, but not so much about descending. So we should embrace the descending religion. Let's explore the, the which was the face of the depths. The face of the deep. The same of the face of the deep. Sometimes we, no, I want to transcend. I want to. I want to go upwards <laughs> only. But sometimes we need to go downwards. That's part of, of the of the of the duty. As we were talking these days, probably we need to to grieve all together. And to, and to stay in that place for some time and to shed, to, to, to find a corresponding set of tears for our particular stage. Each stage of the process, and that idea came when we were talking with Tamal Krishna the other day in the podcast, each stage of our practice has, to, has a corresponding set of tears. And you have to own them and to include them. Like a sita, like a perfected being, you will be crying like Mahapurus crying in Gambir in ecstasy in separation of Krishna. Like a conditioned soul, you will be crying for your frustrated results of enjoying, exploiting the resources of the environment. But as a sadhaka, you have to learn what to cry for also, what to lament for. Prabhupada will say there's lamenting for that which is not worthy of lamentation. Indirectly, he's saying there's always something worthy of lamentation that you should be crying for. So we should find our corresponding set of tears and stay there, learn to stay there, Let's learn to grieve, learn to lament. Also for the condition in which maybe as a community and from that place, not lamenting in a depressive way and all that embracing, ah, no. 
but there's a place for that. Again, there's a place for grieving, as hopefully we, we learn these days. And that may take some time. Okay, it's not like, let's grieve as soon as possible, as quick as possible. We can be ecstatic again. No. <laughs> no. You may need your... I was telling yesterday that to, I think, Devo Mad or again, I don't know whom, but someone, that in some Gaudi institutions that I know, at least some some missions coming from the Gaudi Mad. One example is when, when the Acharya has left his body or her body, and there's some successor, generally in Gaudiya Math missions, they, they appoint one particular successor. The successor does not start his official service after one year of the passing of the Acharya. He doesn't initiate, it's like one year of grieving. No? So I, I, I like that idea. No? Like, because it's, it's like in, in, astro in Vedic astrology, it's like a Sunday, no? like a transition period between one, let's say, one age and the other. No? Between ages, there are yugas, there are Sundays. Like there are, it's not, no? it's not Dwapara, it's not Kali, it's Sunday between the two. So we are like transitioning forward. So, <clears throat> so many times in our own individual life, many times in our own communal life, there is this. There's these Sundays, and some of them will be grief Sundays, so to say. Let's stay for that. So that's, we are moving to a new chapter, but we have to honor this particular transition period. As long as the transition wants us to be there. That's important. I, I know it's unsettling and it's uncomfortable, but you have to learn to to embrace the transition, so to say, as, as unexpected and unsettling as it may be. I mean, in my personal life, I'm in a very transitional chapter now. <laughs> and this, I remember, it was so unsettling. And, and this tendency came like, I want to run away from this because it's completely like unclear. And before that, everything was like nicely compartmentalized, everything in order. No, but chaos knocked my door. And as you mentioned yesterday, bring a realm of possibilities, which is positive, but also. <clears throat> and, and this insight came. No, no, I will, I have to stay in this transition period as long as Krishna wants me to be there. So I have to, I don't want to run away from that. I want to honor whatever I need to see and learn from that unique perspective, because being in a transition period is a unique perspective. Take it like that. Not take it like it's unsettling. It's a unique perspective that you won't have in a non-transition period. So, so I think as a community, we are we are going through a particular transition period. Um, let me read a few words from my book in this connection, if you allow me, just briefly. Uh, <clears throat> in connection to, <clears throat> to a question that we may ask ourselves, and we should, which is, what's the future of Gaudiya Vaishnavism? What's the future of Christian consciousness? That's a healthy question to ask ourselves daily, basically. Hopefully not in a neurotic spirit, but just what's the future of this movement? And, and taking responsibility for our role in it. <clears throat> so they come, this, this comes in a chapter called A Living School of Prophets, An Urgent Need for Proactive Revival. It says... <clears throat> With so many 
with so many member-generated obstacles blocking an honest and fruitful exploration, how are we to approach the pivotal question about the future of our tradition? A simple and sustainable approach is to begin by acknowledging that the future of Gaudiya Vaishnavism lies in our own hands, not in big institutions or megalithic managerial arrangements, nor in unimaginable miracles or enlightened avatars. While all these aspects may be there and even help us greatly, at the end of the day, it is up to us to decide the only thing we are capable of deciding, how to offer our life in the service of our life-giving tradition. This is how any real journey begins, develops, and sustains itself. The tradition can flourish when there is a very remarkable mission in the mind of each of its members, coupled with their committed words living in their flesh, causing them to move. This proactive action implies a visionary revival, transformation, and constant adaptation according to the contours of our time and circumstances. This is not necessarily an organized religion, but a creative one. However, these processes always begin from a fully responsible individual and from there, like, the lock, like from the locus of an explosion, expanding until it finally reaches the collective. So, <clears throat> yeah, it has to do a lot with personal responsibility and being creative, being creative in our, in our participation of Christian consciousness. So that said, <laughs> a few words on revival and proactive. I'll, I want to introduce that in connection to a brief topic I'd like to share today on Guru Tattva, which is because our tradition revolves so much about the relationship between guru and disciple. Uh, but I personally also feel that the relationship guru-disciple needs to be uh, re not canceled at all. Please don't take that. Don't, don't, don't cut my audio in, out of context and make sense. But... Mm -hmm. It's an ever-evolving thing. I mean, Krishna consciousness is ever-evolving. Guru-disciple relationship is ever-evolving. So we need to be always open to redefine what does it mean to be a guru, what does it mean to be a disciple, which type of different models of the relationship and the dynamics of teaching and learning have been employed, are working, will work, will not work, depending the case and so on and so forth. So, <clears throat> so yesterday we focused a little bit more from the duty of the disciple toward the guru. So today I'd like to mention a few things in the opposite direction. In connection to the guru's uh, performing his or her, just in case, his or her, <laughs> uh, and that's another retreat in itself, but I think you, we all understand the point. Uh, his or her seva. Hmm? And that's something that comes to my mind is what Srila Rupa Goswami mentions. In which is a guru should not accept too many disciples. So, of course, it doesn't end there. I will clarify what do I mean by that and Rupa Goswami means that there. So, once Srila Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasvati Thakur was given a lecture, I'm quoting uh, this section. She said, The guru shouldn't have too many disciples. So, one hand was raised in the audience, a disciple of Prabhupada, he sent us, but Gurudev, 
you have so many disciples. <laughs> Some soundtrack was required for this moment. <laughs> We go to some announcement for a few seconds. <laughs> so, <coughs> so the, someone asked him, like, you are telling, quoting Rupa Goswami, Guru should not have too many disciples, but you have a few thousands. <laughs> so he said, that's a matter of personal capacity. Too many. What's too many? Depending on each case. For some people, to have a few thousand, it's too many disciples, probably for most. For some people, to have a few disciples is too many. For some people, for, for people to have one disciple is too many. <laughs> for some people, to be a disciple is too many. <laughs> <clears throat> And it's okay. I mean, I'm not condemning anyone. I, I even know people who will come to me and say, Marash, I cannot commit myself to, to all that it takes to be a disciple, to all these commitments and vows. I don't know if in this lifetime I, I will be able to be a, a disciple officially. And I'm like, it's okay, no problem. I mean, you continue advancing from where you are. If you don't get to reach that mark, you will come eventually. So my point is, for some people, it's too much to be a disciple. We are not stigmatizing the people and just making, we are just stating facts, so to say. <laughs> so Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta will make this point. So, yeah, it's a matter of personal capacity. So in that connection, I, I want to, to unfold a few thoughts in connection to, to different templates between the guru-disciple relationship and how that's expressed. Um, and as I mentioned yesterday, how ideally the connection should be one of Vishram Bena Guru Seva, of love, affection, intimacy, where somehow or other the guru and disciple get to be intimately connected uh, in some way or another. Now I will unfold that. Uh, but as I mentioned yesterday, not so much as a hierarchical, vertical, Aishwaric thing that whenever my guru enters the room I start to tremble and not in ecstasy precisely <laughs> <clears throat> but because of fear and I'm getting nervous I, I, there's place for that I mean kindergarten stage of being a disciple you will go through all those satvic paths so to say <laughs> uh, but eventually <clears throat> the bond has to blossom and it, it did grow it will converge in this sense of mutual collaboration from a very loving place in which the two of us are serving this common ideal and are somehow assisting each other from its own particular unique place because the disciple is assisting the guru and the guru of course assisting the disciple and, and the two of them are completely committed to the ideal and to the relationship mm -hmm. <clears throat> But for this to happen, again, to allow this intimacy, and I think that's something that I, I, I mentioned in my book. In the, in the scripture, say the guru has to know Shastra. The guru has to have internal spiritual realization. And something that the Bhagavatam also says, the guru has to be Upashama Asrayam, which basically technically means he or she 
has taken shelter in through tranquility. <laughs> Upasama Asrayam. No? He or she has taken shelter into tra in tranquility. We sometimes it's translated the guru's senses are under control, which is okay, fair enough. But also I like to nuance that also with the guru has to have a balanced humanity. Hmm? Tranquility, balanced humanity, emotion, psycho-emotional, relatively balance in that. I mean, you can, I'm not saying you have to be 108% balanced in every sense, I mean, but considerable balance to deal with the disciples' humanity. Because if you don't have your humanity in place, how you will deal with the humanity of your disciples? As I mentioned in my book, the duty of the disciple is to be vulnerable in front of the guru, to be naked, so to say, to be transparent, to be surrendered. And the guru has to know what to do with that vulnerability. You have that, That's not so easy. I mean, if someone is vulnerable in front of you, fully vulnerable, I mean, there's a great potential for empowerment in that moment, or there's a great potential for abuse. Vulnerability without proper appreciation can be trampled and can be traumatic, basically. So, so the guru has to be one more thing, and I will finish with that. Let me show one page from this. The guru has to be very, very empathic. Says it, ideally, the guru is to recognize what stage or state her disciple is operating from. I use the feminine gender here just to make the point. You know? mm -hmm. And I want you to feel weird. Well, like, her, her, why, why never her? Okay, that's the way. You have to enter into that. <laughs> Ideally, the guru is to recognize what stage her disciple is operating from. You have to know the person. From there, she will reflect back to them an understanding of this and then help her students relate in a healthy way to that unfolding of their hearts. So that's kind of the guru's role. I'm hearing with you. In fact, a guru is someone who listens with her students to what God is asking them to do. And not someone who merely tells them what to do. Mm. Ideally, that should be the, well, I am accompanying you and I'm hearing what Krishna is revealing in your heart and your mind. Okay, that's okay. And, and some support is coming, not just you do this. <clears throat> A guru should not usurp her disciples' destiny by making their problems her own, but should ideally hear, accompany, and nourish her disciples. However, if a guru cannot appreciate the disciple's vulnerability and therefore does not know what to do with it, the same portal to empowerment can suddenly turn into a portal for abuse and exploitation, even without the guru's intention to do so. Just not knowing what to do with another's vulnerability can be dreadful. Sometimes observable patterns can be detected. Gurus who have not allowed themselves to have deep, close relationships and intimate friendships are often the same people who may end up trampling one's vulnerability, something that can be rightfully deemed abuse of power. To put it bluntly, if a guru does not know how to deal with her student's vulnerability, she should probably not be serving as a guru. <clears throat> so that's in connection to, to having a balanced humanity and knowing what to do with... Sorry, yeah. Sounds a lot like being a parent. Well, there is a lot of parallels there, of course. No? 
And again, this is not limited to, to the Guru disciples. It brings to mind the, the, the different ashrams and, you know, this sounds, sounds like uh, parenting is good preparation for guruhood. <laughs> I mean, to be a parent is to be a guru, technically speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mother, father, first guru, ideally, at least in Vedic society, that's how it's conceived. And that's I'm going in a few minutes that how we have, we are to ideally expand our sense of guru. Because sometimes we think guru is this single person who initiated me, period. But in the Vedic, like cosmovision, guru begins at home, so to say, and expands into so many other ways. No? My husband, my wife, my mother, my, son, my child, no, I mean, if you have the disciple, the disposition of a disciple, you will start like guru, 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 guru. I mean, no? Srila Siddhar Maharaj will say, our goal is to enter the land of gurus, where everything is guru, where even the land, the soil is guru. Everything is made of a substance which is ontologically superior to you. <laughs> That's how he puts it. What does it mean to enter Golak Vrindavan? You will enter into a land when even the land is made of something superior than your own constitution. So everything is to be served by you there, even the land. So he will say, give the example, in that land, you will walk in, how do you say in English, with your head to the, like this, with your head to the floor? <laughs> no, because you are, everything is like venerable for you there. No. And he's giving the idea, it's not that literally you will be, Serving Krishna in the Lila like that, <laughs> it's not too practical. <laughs> but he's making the point. You, you are. Our goal is to enter a land where everything is guru, and of course, we will never get there if we do not attain that vision here first. I, it sounds simple, but I try to make that point. No? Don't think like no. In, in this lifetime, I only see one guru, but suddenly I will be transferred to a place where everything is guru. If you are not accustomed to see guru everywhere here, you won't go to the place where gurus are everywhere. So that's a kind of kanishta. We'll say the parallel of the kanishta vision. And the scriptures say the kanishta only sees Krishna in one place, in the altar. The madhyam sees Krishna in other people. The uttam sees Krishna everywhere. <laughs> it's interesting. The, the symptoms for each one is the level to which one can perceive God's presence. In the beginning, it's hyper-localized. Krishna is in the altar. I'm probably only in my altar. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Kanishta Kanishta version. <laughs> Krishna is in my altar. Kanishta Madhya is Krishna is in the altar. <laughs> in my altar and in the temple's altar. <laughs> Kanishta Uttam in every altar. <laughs> uh, no? So Krishna is... Only here, Madhyam Krishna is in every living entity. Uttam Krishna is in every atom. <laughs> and you can apply the same idea with the Guru. Guru Kanisha will be, Guru is only the one who initiated me. <laughs> no? And so on and so forth. In the Madhyam vision is Guru. There are more than one Gurus. There is place for more than one Gurus. And the Uttam vision is a land of Gurus. Where the Guru is not. Like when Nishrinhadev asked Prahlad, is God there? And he pointed at the pillar. And Prahlad was like, where is he not? Mm -hmm. oh, he was looking everywhere and seeing God everywhere. Like, 
I, there's not a spot that I cannot find him. <laughs> Imagine. So anyhow. So yeah, it's quite connected, as you mentioned, to, to what does it mean to be a parent, what does it mean to be a mother, to what does it mean to be a guru. Because literally, and, and as I will go now, the, the Vedic traditional description of, of, of the guru and, and learning from the guru, the system was called Gurukul. Mm. And Gurukul literally means the family of the guru, which literally, literally meant you go to live with your guru in his, her house. You go to live there. And of course, the guru cannot feed more people than those that can fit under the roof of the, of the guru's house. That was the traditional system. So that, I'll connect that with the point I want to make. And by this point, I'm not criticizing one system or another, one model of another, just sharing thoughts, brainstorming along with you in loud voice. But we can talk in terms of two, two models. One model will be, could be one guru, many disciples, on some other model. I'm presenting two. There can be 108, but just sharing a few thoughts. Some other guru can be many gurus, fewer disciples. <clears throat> so sometimes in the first model, one guru, many disciples, the guru may attract some, whatever, some people from the masses who are inspired to take up bhakti, and some of them... Some of them will be serious enough to become initiates, you know, practitioners, committed practitioners. But, it, <clears throat> but in this system, the guru is receiving them, but the, the emphasis continues on getting more people. And all of them require the attention of that single guru. Mm -hmm. And as, you, as we mentioned, I remember all this in the context of Rupa Goswami saying, try not to have more disciples that you can handle. So if the guru's attention is divided into too many people and, and, and newer and newer newcomers that keep coming with the newcomers' struggles and issues, which is okay, but I mean, they require attention. <laughs> and if all that is just converging into that single guru figure, um, the guru first may not be able to give special training to those who are already with him for some time. And the guru may not be able to address every single one of those persons because there are too many. I mean, we have 24 hours per day and certain limited capacities. So, so the point is that some of those disciples who require attention, who require guidance, may be confused, may be like discouraged because I have questions, I need time, I need guide, personalized guidance, and I may not be receiving that. And sometimes, eventually, some of those disciples may may leave, may take a distance from the whole situation, may look for a new guru, may, may return to a previous lifestyle. Uh, <clears throat> so in that case, I'm not saying that's a problem, that's wrong, because of course we know there are many gurus who have sometimes thousands of disciples. But in those cases, I will suggest we need some, some system where the guru has disciples who become themselves mentors even if they are not initiating other people, but become there is some kind of system where everyone can get personalized guidance uh, because that's the essence of the guru-disciple relationship, basically. You need to be educated. You need to be formed. Again, we may say, but Dhruv Maharaj only here from Narmoni five minutes. No? <laughs> and again, it was Ruva Maharaj. 
So, sorry, I can't have a I just had a quick comment. Yeah. Actually, in support of your point, about 30 years ago, I was driving. It can be against my point also, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just, I wouldn't interrupt, but I was driving the Mirage to the airport in Los Angeles. About a two hour drive. And towards the end, you know, this is in the 90s. You know, he said, you know, I have 35 disciples now, and I'm thinking of stopping initiating <clears> because <throat> I want to have a relationship with each one of them, you know. And mm. it was the first time I'd heard that concept, but it just, I just appreciated his, you know, what, what you're explaining, the, the, the guru knowing their capacity and finding what's the right balance and, mm -hmm. or, or the right system to property mm -hmm. anyway, just, no, thank you for the contribution and again bear in mind I'm, we are talking about acknowledging one's capacity mm -hmm. so someone may have the capacity to have 4,000 disciples sure. like Prabhupada had be of course uniquely empowered and spend so much time writing letters not only writing letters writing books writing purpose so that's a one way of really trying to keep in touch with each one of them. Jai Jagannath. Someone was asking yesterday about having some discomfort about the guru relationship, like the, the, the connection to God needing to be the root of the medium of a guru. Yeah, Anya. And uh, something came up for me with that question. This from the Bhakti Sandarbha is in the section on surrender. Mm. And Anyway, I just want to read a little section of it. I want to hear some comments on this. It says, in this regard, it is true that all perfection is accomplished simply through surrender. As stated in the Garuda Purana, quote, those who have forsaken the paths of meditation and yoga and taken refuge of you certainly transcend death and attain the supreme abode of Bhagavan Vishnu. In spite of this, however, if one longs to taste a specific flavor of love and has the ability to do so, he should constantly and single-mindedly render service to the lotus feet of a guru who can instruct one in the confidential proportions <coughs> of the devotional scriptures or who initiates one into the mystery of the mantras that pertain to Bhagavan. So I, this statement has always kind of tripped me up a little bit. Not tripped me up, but made me wonder it sounds like here saying by sharing nagati alone you can attain god no need or there's no necessary obligation to the guru mm -hmm. as such because by sharing nagati that relationship can be established mm -hmm. with the lord mm -hmm. which kind of makes me feel like well yeah sometimes you hear like these mystics and other traditions they don't seem to have like gurus but they seem to have high level Shantara Reti type realizations, which mm -hmm. are like impressive and, and even inspiring in some cases. Um, but if you want to know like the esoterics pertaining to the Lord's confidential Leela, mm -hmm. obviously you need someone to instruct you in that. And so yesterday at lunch, um, Ujjala was making the point that, yeah, I, I get the sense that what people are looking for from a guru is like a Bhajan Shiksha guru who can inspire them essentially in that like more esoteric realm mm -hmm. and this was in response to me saying what happened to the relationship with the guru just being educational like the guru teaches you the tattoo and like now you know do your thing like he, he did his duty or she has done her duty 
but it's like, yeah, they're looking for someone who can guide their budget on towards that more. So yeah, I, I kind of interested in comments. If you have any comments on this, like my first one is like, Share Nagati, surrender God seems to be sufficient if, mm. if you're just trying to have a relationship with God, like mm. a communion. Mm. But if you're trying to enter into that realm of divine Leela, then you want a guru who can really instruct you in, in that. And it does seem that that's kind of, well, yeah. And so looking to the future of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, because we're trying to promote Krishna Leela, um, we will want gurus who are acquainted um, in tattva and also experientially with Leela because that's what we're looking instructions for. Otherwise, just surrender to God. Like, if, you know, if you're having a hard time trusting the purity of gurus and so on. Like, so I don't know. You have a comment on this? Because this, this particular sentence has really always made me wonder, like, hmm, I mean, it's like, it's interesting to me. Hmm. Yeah, thank you for sure. <clears throat> yeah, I agree with your points to begin with. And and that's why I, as we were talking, I think yesterday, that some people will think like, yeah, unless you are initiated, now you share something, nothing is going on, or not necessarily that's the case. As you, as you are quoting from Jiva Goswami, you can even embrace Saranagati from a particular place, and so much can come from that. A lot, a lot. But what Jiva Goswami mentions there is, I will say, it's Gaudiya common sense. You know? Like, if you want to to penetrate into the minutiae and the specificity of of a life of Lila and all its implications, that requires a pretty personalized uh, mentorship, mm -hmm. so to say, because it's so personalized. Oh, so that requires something very, per that corresponding level of pers radical personalism that's going on there in the Lila requires a corresponding personalized address and mentorship and guidance. So, and yes, sometimes Srila Jeeva Swami will refer to that as the Sandharvas as Bhajan Siksha Guru. And I, 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 I won't torture you with too many terms today and different types of gurus and functions because of course Bayan Siksha Guru can be the, the very same guru that gave me Diksha or initiation it's not that okay that's a separate guy or lady that has to come to perform that unique function because this guru gives him no no but it can also be someone else apart from the person who is giving me uh, initiation so again, depending on each particular case, I will say it's important that, yeah, we become aware, as we say yesterday, you know, like, why do I want a guru to begin with? No, I mean, I, okay, I want to be a disciple, but why? What I'm looking for? And probably the idea I was looking for, it's just this. And when you contact the guru or the self, you realize, oh, I came for this, but it was about this. No? Huh. So, so then you start like to like the GPS, not like recalculating, not like okay, no my like doing some ritual like we did yesterday. Okay, I'm losing this sense of identity as a disciple. I thought that this was disciple, but now I'm discovering this means to be a disciple. And so many times that will happen. <laughs> so, so yeah, I will say that correspondingly to to our level of discovery 
of Krishna consciousness and all that Krishna consciousness implies, we will we will need corresponding guidance to that. In the beginning, some devotees will be okay receiving some more generic support and instruction, which is what they need at that stage, and it's okay. Don't need to like to overwhelm them with the ultra detailed specificity corresponding to higher periods. But eventually, a particular level of inquiry and taste and necessity and doubts will start to come more specific. No? I like to call Raghunuga Bhakti like the path of specificity. <laughs> it's not generic. Again, it's not like, oh, you just do that and you go to. And like sometimes I joke to the devotees, similar to what you do, Jai Jagannath, and when you ask them, what's the goal of life? Don't tell me Krishna Prem. <laughs> but even if you tell me Krishna Prem, my immediate question will be, or if you, you tell me love of God, sometimes that's the American version of it. So I will ask, okay, which type of love or which type of God? No. Let's go from generic to ultra-specific, love of God. Okay, which type of love or which type of God? Krishna, Ram, Nusrinka, Baraha, whomever, Vishnu. No, no, for Krishna. Okay, love for Krishna. For which Krishna? Vrindavan, Raja Krishna, Maturesh Krishna, Dwarakesh Krishna. Oh. Raja Krishna. Okay, which type of love for Raja Krishna? Uh, Madhurya Prem for Raja Krishna. Okay, which type of Madhurya Prem? <laughs> <laughs> Parakya Bhav, Swakya Bhav. Uh, of course, it's not that you just decide like this, like if you go to a supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> Give me three bottles of parakia this time. I will try this ice cream today. It's not like that. It doesn't happen like that, just in case. <laughs> but let's say, okay, parakia, but then can, which type of parakia for, for Raja Krishna? Because you have direct connection with him, direct union, Sambhogechamai, or you have Bhavulas. Uh, sorry, uh, what's the term? Yeah, yeah. So then, okay, so, okay, you just what sometimes is called more literally manjariba. So I would say, oh, manjariba. So which, which type of manjariba under the guidance of which particular group leader, you know? So my point with this, I don't want to torture you. It's not that you have to reply to me those things now, but from love of God to, I mean, we, okay. Now you go back to love of God, it's like absolute abstraction. <laughs> <laughs> now that's why in, in the Ramananda Sambhal, when Mahaprabhu was talking with Ramananda Roy, he was inquiring about Sadhya Sadhana Tattva, what's the goal of life and how to get it. Mm. Of course, Ramananda Roy says so many things that Mahaprabhu rejects. No, that's superficial, that's a gubahya kahar. And at one point he says, Prem. No, he during this same conversation, what's the goal of life? Love of God, Mahabharu said, continue. That's I'm not satisfied yet. I was like, wow, what's going on here? <laughs> I thought that was the official answer to involve when someone asked you that. <laughs> Mahabharu is like, we are just like warming up here. No? Like when you put the car, like we're warming up. We are going somewhere, but go on, go on, go on, go on. Until Mahaprabhu has to tell Ramananda, stop talking. <laughs> That's too much. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for your answer. <laughs> so, so yeah, gradually we will, be, we will start to, but not like an intellectual curiosity. No? Okay, I want to be more specific and know more. It's more like a very 
passionate necessity, so to say, to I really need to become more specific, more personalized. Again, radical personalism is you get to a point of you as a person, as an individual, when you want to be very specific about how you want to relate to God. You know? I mean, I think that happens with any person. You, know, you relate with your wife in a certain way, with your mom in a certain way. You cannot just relate with your mom as if she's your wife or your children. It has to be specific in the realm of that corresponding relationship. And inside that, unique flavors are coming. And in time, unique flavors are will still coming. So, so yeah, you will raise your hand. It, it's kind of just a follow-up. It's not my question. But if someone isn't coming, like looking to the future of the guru, mm. let's say mm. soft institution, like if we were to become gurus in the future, um, but all gurus are need to see that, so only them can become gurus. We don't have chance, sorry. Rejecting, rejecting that notion. Okay. Okay. Um, so suppose we, in the future, you know, future generation, we want to run the service of the Bodhi Sampradaya. Um, and so, you know, somehow it comes upon us, the idea that we might become guru. Mm -hmm. Or somehow life is seeming to indicate that. Mm -hmm. in, in taking that responsibility, do we really need to, this is just thinking out loud, if someone isn't really inquiring about that highest reality, do they really need to become disciples? <clears throat> would they not be satisfied with just the, or it, would it not be sufficient mm -hmm. to just give them instructions on share Nagati? Like mm -hmm. that's the essence of Bhagavad Gita's highest teaching is surrender to Krishna of Braj, according to our Acharyas. Mm -hmm. You surrender there. And only if by continuous hearing of mm -hmm. the top, the idea comes to them that I'm all oh, actually I'm after that realm, and then they come seeking discipleship with that in mind. And then only we should accept. Now, obviously, that would be a little bit contrary to what we've seen from like Shri Prabhupada and Shri Bhaktisiddhanta, mm -hmm. where they kind of embrace everyone. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's like one method that was for that generation. But I'm thinking about looking to the future. Mm -hmm. It seems like if the injunction you you start us off with. Don't accept too many disciples. So we can just say that, you know, the essence of the teach, highest teaching, surrender to Krishna. And if the disciple or the persons who are coming to us are, that's what they're getting, and they're not getting the intuition or inspiration or direction for anything higher, then do, they, do we really need to accept disciples, mm -hmm. so to speak? And this is obviously just thinking out loud, just yeah. going through yeah. all of this. Yeah, this is an ongoing conversation, and it's not just like here we are giving you the final conclusive right. truth on how to deal with all these issues forever. No, nobody's saying that. Just in case we are exploring together some possibilities. And, and again, we are, at least personally, I'm not of the idea of there will be only one way of doing everything, because that's another form of dictatorship or narrow mindedness. <laughs> but Regarding what you were telling, I was thinking, okay, you can tell someone no need to accept a guru, just engage in saranagati and surrender. But at the same time, it's tricky because what the person understands by that. So most of us need a guru to understand what surrender. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just this surrender. It's like, okay, what surrender? So someone has to be there answering that question. Oh, there are six angas of surrender. What's what are those six angas? So, so I will say also on one level, 
I personally feel that what Sri Lajiva was trying to say, I mean, I'm not canceling what we talked so far, but I will say similarly to what you read from Prabhupada yesterday. That's the way of Jiva Goswami is emphasizing the power of surrender. Mm -hmm. like, like, like when Shastra is saying, Harinam is independent of Diksha. The holy name of Krishna can give you all perfection independently of Diksha. So one can say, okay, so I continue chanting Karinam. Don't get initiated by anyone because the name can give everything. Similar criteria. But of course, you then go to the nuance idea of, okay, but there are 10 offenses to avoid in the chanting. And one of them is Guru Rabakya, uh, which is neglecting the principle of the Guru. So in theory, Harinam can give everything. And there may be some exceptional cases which just receive that perfection without officially having Diksha. But also we know that Harinam, which is not different from Hari, likes to give himself through the medium of the Guru. So if you neglect that principle, it's tantamount to Apurat, and Apurat gets in the way of the, ripping the full fruits of Harinam. Mm -hmm. So I would say something similar in the sense of, okay, just by surrender, you can attain everything. You can attain everything. You can attain Krishna, everything, in one way. <laughs> It's a way of saying, okay, Saranagati is so powerful. No, don't watch out not to underestimate the power of Saranagati. But I will say that when you enter into the practical situation, a practical situation, okay, I will just do Saranagati and attain Krishna. Probably you will start, you will have to inquire from any from someone like, what's Saranagati? How to do that? And so that person starts to become your guru in some level. I'm not saying it's giving you initiation. So in that sense, one could say the person is giving you siksha, 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 and you, okay, engage in saranagati. And, but I would say that many times, naturally, that siksha, that experience of saranagati you're having, eventually tends to be expressed in the direction of guru padastra. You, you want to express then saranagati in connection to that particular person. So I will make that point also, you know, like Jiva Goswami says that in one sense, mainly, again, exceptional cases, yeah, you can just Saranagati out of your own and attain Krishna, but generally it's a statement of how powerful Saranagati is, but generally how much you also need to take guidance from someone in order to engage in Saranagati. Uh, I, I really appreciate that verse that you shared. And um, I think also in my own experience and just from hearing that's been discussed, one thing is that there's something that's happening in Diksha. There's a lot more going on than the disciple may be aware of. That the guru is aware, can see more potential in the disciple than the, the disciple may see at that stage in their life. And I think even within our institution, there are gurus that have different approaches. I think there are gurus that are more maybe doing in the direction of what you specify. Um, and then in my own experience, because you were mentioning the point that the disciple is going for a guru. Maybe they're not like clear of the goal yet, but they do have a goal that's spiritual. And from my own experience, um, and I've met devote, devotees that went for many years and really performed and really experienced deep levels of devotion 
um, just by virtue of like their faith in what they've read in Prabhupada's books and in, in, in what they were, how they related to the gurus and the movement without having diksha. Like um, in my personal experience, um, I read like, like Introduction to Krishna Consciousness and Nectar of Devotion and Bhagavad Gita and Bhagavatam, like first canto. And at that stage, I felt like I was very convinced of the overall philosophy, but I needed a person to be accountable to, like a, a person, like a living person in front of me to be accountable to in order to actually commit myself to it. Like I needed to see that person that, okay, like this is the person that like I couldn't do it for myself or for Prabhupada. Like it had to be a person that I felt like, oh, I'm indebted to you. Like, like, and um, when I, when I was, ha I was feeling the weight of that very quickly, that person came into my life. And so, um, and I would say like, I just had a vague conception, like Krishna Prema. Um, but then that person came into my life and then, um, even just taking shelter of that person, suddenly I was able to come up to the standard that I was wanting to come to. But before having that person in my life, I wasn't willing to come to that standard for my own self because I didn't have faith in my own self. Like, just by my conviction, can I really, like, be this metric that I consider what it means to be a disciple of what Prabhupada's presented? But then once that person came into my life, I felt, oh, as an accountability to him, like, like I have faith that by his mercy, I can actually do that. So the conviction in my ability to practice bhakti came from um, my spiritual master appearing in my life. So, and I'll, uh, as a further point, because you mentioned the frame and those other things. I, I, for my own reflection, it's that I became overwhelmed because I've heard you speak before about higher levels of initiation into like Raghunuga Bhakti, like what that really implies more than kind of a myopic understanding that I've carried for many years is like, you know, specific, like what kind of mandri, like this kind of thing. And whenever I first started hearing these things, I was like very overwhelmed. I was like, oh, I'm zero because I can't even imagine what that would mean for me. But like just recently, and especially here and now within this discussion, I realized like, hey, well, this is where I am. And there is a very specific thing. But like now I can see oh, there's stages even between Prema and that. And um this conversation is really helping me consolidate. Like I can start to see clearly and tangibly like the next steps that I'm, that I can take toward that, but are also tangible to my life now. Like what elements of bhakti can I take now that I'm really already taking, but in the context of serving a particular, a more particular mood, um, even though they, it, it's funny because externally it's like the same things, a lot of them, but the mood changes. Mm -hmm. And um, 
just appreciating that spectrum and how that may not be able to, how Diksha is, um, or different guru relationships are, are happening along the way. Yeah. Thank you. I think it's important this point of, and I appreciate your, especially the last point you made by talking about higher things. We are not pretending, hey guys, come on, enter into that, all these details. And I mean, you cannot force yourself into that. That will be sad. Yeah. But it's as, as also, <clears throat> the Jagat mentioned this day, it's good to have at least some idea of the ultimate goal to attain on some way, on some level, uh, to contextualize whatever we are doing here today but also to establish healthy, sustainable, short-term goals, middle-term goals, and long-term goals in our lives. And, and, and not mistake one for the other. No, don't put your long-term goal as your short-term goal because you will go neurotic. <laughs> no? And what's coming on premise not coming. After this retreat, still, I'm, I'm here. No? <laughs> That's a long-term goal. That may happen in a few lifetimes. It's okay. And once one devotee asks, let's see the Maharaj, Gurudev, when I, if, if someone starts in this lifetime, bhakti, let's say, how much time does it take for them to reach the ultimate perfection? <laughs> I said, I was like, oh, again, that question. <laughs> Who cares? No, in one sense, we, we shouldn't care. No, like once one devotee asked his guru, when will I get liberated? And he replied, when you stopped asking that question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you no longer care for asking that question. Then you are beyond that. You are, but in the case of Srila Maharaj, he said, well, if in this lifetime you start bhakti, and you are, of course, serious and consistent, maybe two, three lifetimes. And the body was shocked. Like, two, three lifetimes? Like, and Srila Maharaj was, the devotee shocked, and he was shocked. <laughs> Is that too much, two, three lifetimes? No, from beginningless birth and deaths to attain such a goal just to realize like yeah. he was shocked by the devotees. <laughs> so so the point is, yeah, we have eternity on our side. There is no rush. Our goal is not mukti leaving this place as soon as possible. Bhakti is not an evacuation plan for the afterlife. <laughs> and we should be realistic and establish short-term, middle-term goals and and be willing to, to go through our embarrassing God bless this mess chapters <laughs> with, with, with humble pride, so to say, being fortunate that I'm going through them. Like I was talking yesterday to someone, don't ask me who. <clears throat> well, well, with, with Ananda Murari, and I think Prem was there, I don't remember who Prem was. About Madhurya Kadambini, you know, and how Vishwanatha Gavarti Thakur is describing all these stages from Shraddha to Prem. And at one point, he describes, <clears throat> an art an art and bhajana kriya very much in detail and he goes to anistita bhajana kriya which means devotional practice with unsta in instability you say in english unsteadiness, unsteadiness. unsteadiness. No? And, and he starts to define them in detail now all of them and one is more embarrassing than the other no but generally when i describe them with the votes okay raise your hand who identify with this one as like Second one, raise it, and everyone's like, no, at one point, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> we are doing choreography and all the hands are like, <laughs> unanimous, no? 
And some of them are embarrassing. I mean, it's like lack of capacity of maintaining your vows and loss of enthusiasm and, and, and becoming like excited by material byproducts coming from bhakti and so on and so forth. It's like, but all, and, and we may feel like, oh, I'm, I must, but, but when we go through those experiences, sometimes we feel, I must be doing something wrong. This shouldn't be happening. Again, we over-idealize and put the long-term goal, short-term goal. I should be feeling this, 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 this. And I'm going through this dark tunnel. But Vishwanath Chakravartakur is presenting them as stages of the practice. So the point is, when you are going through them, you're, that's a confirmation that you are on the path. <laughs> you follow. It's not the ultimate goal. I'm not saying stay there forever and celebrate your unsteadiness. But that type of unsteadiness, Vishwanath Chakravartakur is so generous, that that's part of the bhakti experience. So that embarrassment is confirming you are on the path. So there is a reason to celebrate that. To be embarrassed, but to celebrate that embarrassment. So I'm saying that to, to, to be also a little bit non-neurotic about some of those experiences and entering into a guilt, shame trip, and taking the whip, and... No, I must be failing, and that's why I'm experiencing this. And probably, and you are lamenting in an excessive way was for something that probably you should be grateful for and celebrating on some level. No? Should answer. On that point, like I've heard many times, like on, on which point, sir? Like, um, like I like when you say eternity's on our side. Mm. Um, not to be lazy, no, not to like. Uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah. So, so that like I've heard make it out in this lifetime um if if you don't make it out in this lifetime Kali Yuga is getting worse so if you come back there might not be devotees and you might you can lose your human form of life and you never know <laughs> my so gosh it's just like I'm already like on the like more anxious side and not wanting to be <laughs> so then that like is like not helpful i guess mm, so yeah. you guess probably yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay because yeah yeah that, that's not our tradition i mean if you practice bhakti to get liberated that's gyan misra bhakti basically that's bhakti mixed with a desire for mukti and that's not the, the Uttam Bhakti Rupa which Swami is describing. Jnana, karma, nabritam. Or bhakti has to be jnana and abritam. It has to be unencumbered by the desire for liberation. When Mahaprabhu said, Nada nam na janam na sundarim kabitam ba. I want kabit. Kabita means poetry, but also it means knowledge of the punishment that take to liberation. So Mahaprabhu in that kabitam ba means I don't, I don't care for liberation. I, we don't care for mukti. Moksha laguta krit, says Rupa Goswami. One point of the process, moksha becomes insignificant. Mm -hmm. That's in bhava bhakti. In prema bhakti becomes non-existent. It, it disappears from there. Mm -hmm. So we are not practicing to, I hope I, hope I get liberated. No, I mean, that's not what Krishna is saying. Krishna, the Gita, what does he say? Neha bikramana susti pratyabhayana vidyates valpamapyasya dharmasya triyati mahatulvaya. He's saying, even one slight progress in the bhakti process will protect you from the greatest danger and you, it will never be lost. For me, that's it. I mean, he makes it very clear. If you are in the bhakti practice seriously, 
you will never lose whatever you acquire. So it's not there's not a point of in my next lifetime I may lose everything. I may not have sadhu sangha. I may lose human form of life and all these types of threats that sometimes are done without bad intention. I'm sure from anyone, but in, in, you enter this type of collective neurosis, mm. <laughs> and that becomes the norm. Like we have to run away from here as soon as possible. Uh, and, and 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 it's it has a lot. I mean, that's a, lot, and a whole different chapter and retreat, <laughs> but it has a lot to do with this also, like uh, world-denying approach to bhakti. Like this world is so bad, so horrible that we need to get out of here. No? And I can understand on some level there's place for saying that, but on some level there's place for not saying that and realizing Krishna's coming to to this world perpetually to execute his lila. So how, how bad is this world? When Krishna's coming to earth, he executes his lila, concludes his lila on earth, goes to another planet earth, continuing the lila. So if he's perpetually on earth, how much you can say, oh, this is so bad, I want to live here. But Krishna's coming over and over again. Prabhupada Saraswati say, Vishwam Purnam Sukhayate, the whole universe is full of joy. <laughs> so, so yeah, I will try to... I mean, there is, I mean, I, I'm more of the stance of, if you are sincere in bhakti, I mean, Krishna is giving the warranty, you will not lose contact with bhakti in your next life. You will not lose your human form of life. I mean, to, to, to emphasize that is an insult to bhakti, basically. It's an underestimating the power of bhakti. I mean, bhakti is so powerful, so generous. Krishna is so merciful. If you are sincere as a devotee, don't you think Krishna is in your heart? Taking note, you know, I will send her as, as a cockroach to be born. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm joking, but it's, I'm serious in the sense that by taking this stance of I may lose this at every at any moment, you are unconsciously projecting Krishna is not kind enough. Krishna is, doesn't know my heart. Mm. Krishna is not reciprocating lovingly. And even if I'm sincere trying to practice, there is the risk of losing everything at every moment. I mean, that's paranoia. That's not healthy. Imagine conducting yourself in practice like that for your whole life. Mm. Oh, my gosh. Mm. Oh. The result of that won't be Gulag Brindavan, I can tell you. Probably will be the psychiatric hospital. <laughs> <nearby>. <laughs> so so it's, it's, it's a serious issue. We, we may be projecting a very distorted idea of who Krishna is by, by acting in that way. Because indirectly, I'm telling Krishna, I don't trust you. You can send me to hell at any moment. You can make me lose this. And you you, you put on your shoulders this extreme weight of it all depends on me. No, I have to struggle and deserve and earn. And it's a meritocracy. Like, I have to guarantee that I gained and I don't. Oh, that's. Oh. And you forget to offer your heart in a voluntary loving way to Krishna because you are too busy and paranoid trying to <laughs> to not lose the human form of life and not going to hell <laughs> i mean i'm not telling that to you i'm telling in general and all of us may visit those places or have visited those places but i don't think that's very bhakti-like you know? based on fear and, and, and intimidation and and for in some cases we we tend to those things because sometimes we are just carrying some unresolved, in some cases, unresolved daddy projections, our childhood trauma with the authority figure, and, and we think, okay, God is like that also, so at any moment, he may be angry, so I have to appease angry daddy, 
no? And you carry your spiritual life from that spirit, no? I hope Krishna not angry with me. I hope Krishna forgives me. Oh, I didn't chant my 16 rounds today. Krishna must be so angry with me. He doesn't like me anymore. Who say that? You are we are projecting the idea. No? We are we are worshiping a God of unconditional grace, unconditional love. Karuna Sindhu, ocean of mercy. Ocean means you cannot see the beginning of the end of the ocean. <laughs> we shouldn't lose sight of that. No? What to speak Mahaprabhu, Nityananda Prabhu, they are they are partial. They are so they are impartial in the sense that they are partial to everyone. That's their impartiality. They are partial to everyone. <laughs> Especially if you are fallen and you acknowledge your fallenness, oh, count our gang, so to say. So I hope that helps to navigate that and to be more reassured. Like I'm already in the path. Uh, what's, what's the name of Brandon Marsh's book? The Journey Home? Yeah. I'm already there. So to have that confidence, it's not pride. It's not how oh, that's your false ego. You think you are already going back to, yes, I am. <laughs> not by my merit, but by the strength of bhakti, by the mercy of the Vaishnava. I have this confidence that I'm going to Krishna. Maybe this lifetime, a few more lifetimes, I don't care. I mean, I have no rush. The bhakti is beautiful, so I don't, I mean, I, from, where, from where I want to escape now, like someone was, again, asking Sulasya Marsh, about this neurosis, leaving this body and when to reach Golok. I say, but Bhakti is so beautiful. So where do you want to go? You're already doing Bhakti. And you will plan to do Bhakti for eternity. So what's the difference? It's just a difference of depth and intensity that you are to cultivate here now. <laughs> so that's the beauty of Bhakti. You know? Bhakti is the means, Bhakti is the goal. So we are already doing the same things that we will plan to do for eternity. In eternity, we plan to do bhakti. Now we are doing bhakti. In one sense, eternity came to us. So we don't have anywhere to go. There's no need to go anywhere. We are already there. The goal came, met us. <laughs> for me, that's a more, not healthy only perspective, but realistic according to what is bhakti. We are already there. It's just the rest is a matter of time. So it's important to conduct ourselves with that faith and confidence yeah that is definitely the fear of like getting left behind again sir like a fear of getting left behind yeah but again when if you enter in that spirit i'm i'm being left behind it's we will lose sight of of the grace and the mercy of mahaprabhu and the vaishnavas uh, we'll lose sight of that so it's important never to lose sight of that <laughs> because we'll we will start to see reality without unconditional love and grace, and that's hell. <laughs> there is no prospect, there is no hope, there is no grace. I mean, what remains? So, yeah, and I think we, we one sec, sorry, one, <laughs> one, one needs to do to remind ourselves of these things as a discipline on a daily basis. One can even include that as, as a form of one's sadhana. You can put a sign on, on the wall of your house, like to, okay, yes. Unconditional love, <laughs> yes, confidence, and not losing my human form of life. <laughs> Whatever you need, one needs to be reminded of on your cell phone. I mean, I don't have cell phone, that's why I'm not giving those examples. You can put a reminder in your cell phone <laughs> of those things. Even it may sound forced or mechanic, but sometimes we need like <laughs> mm -hmm. 
you are not losing your human form of life, okay? No. <laughs> Main Siri tell you that on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, because for many times you have heard the opposite. So we need to hear that so many times to really balance the equations. Okay. It's causeless mercy. Yeah. And so there's nothing that we can do to obtain it's I don't deserve it I don't deserve it more than anyone in this room and but we need it but as anyone in this room yeah yeah and and coming to the point where I realize that my my devotion is more important than any rule that I follow mm. that's really what Krishna yeah. wants he doesn't in my mind and Forgive me if I'm wrong or speaking out of turn, but... I forgive you. Thank you. <laughs> In advance. <laughs> you know me so well. Uh, there's there's this, this idea to follow of regimen, rules, doing things the right way, mm. and all of this. Mm. And then there's... I know that there's an intention behind it, but it seems like sometimes you lose your devotion in all of the rules. You lose the whole reason why you're here. And the whole reason why you're here is because you're a mess and you need God so much. There's no other place to turn but to God. To place your head on his feet and say, I'm so desperate. I agree. Rupa Goswami says one of the six things you can do to ruin your bhakti is niyamagraha, which means embrace rules, but losing the spirit of the rule ah. and get entangled in the rule following. That will be ruining your bhakti, basically. Yeah. So he's saying if you want to ruin your bhakti, he's not saying like that, of course, but <laughs> do this. Now, follow lots of rules without having a clue why the hell you're doing that. <laughs> You will lose everything. <laughs> and with this, I'm not promoting any anarchy or sahaja, just no rules, let's do whatever we want. But just to understand, <laughs> the rules have purpose and have an intention, have an inner spirit. So we are to connect with the inner spirit of the rule. And sometimes, as it is said, sometimes you have to break some rules to follow higher ones, deeper ones. But rules are to nourish love. Love is the ultimate rule. Love rules <laughs> in every sense of the term. So whatever rules are taking me to embrace that rule, I accept those. Uh, rules not necessarily have to be limiting. Rules have to facilitate. Well, like I gave the example the other day, again, I don't know to whom, but of a game. I play a game. Reality, ultimately reality is Leela. Lila means play. And any play, any game has rules. If you, there are no rules, you cannot play. If I say, okay, let's play chess with Gitanjali. No? I don't know how to play chess just in case, but hypothetically speaking, let's say I suppose I know how. And I start to move the pieces as I like, just without following any rule. So Gitanjali will be like, what are you doing, Maharaj? No? <laughs> You will break all etiquette and tell me, Maras, you're nonsense. So there you go. <laughs> this is not fun. I mean, we, we are not actually playing chess. This is just you know, this is sheer chaos. I mean, nonsense. So 
rules are there to bring excitement. If I follow the rules, it will be fun. So there's a place for rules and fun, so to say. So I like to conceive of rules in that. And Lila has rules. Lila's game, play. There are rules that if you break them, we call it rasabhas. We call that improper connection with the divine play. So rules have a purpose. But again, it's important. Sometimes we know when, when to break some rules or only to accept higher ones, mm. to higher commitments. You can break a vow to keep a higher vow, like Krishna breaking his vow and going to Bhishma um, mm. to mm. kill him, to keep a higher vow, which is Bhaktavatsalya. I always protect my devotees. Of course, this means he's devoted. Seems he's not protecting him. That's not another layer of the discussion, but you get the point. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I totally, yeah, totally agree with you. We have to be careful not to get. We have to connect to the spirit of the rule. Like, like, like I mentioned in my book, to give one example, the four regulative principles. That's kind of generally the rule that for many is like. That's quite emphasized here. <laughs> And it's great, but you have to conceive the rule in a wide way, as we were telling the other day. The rule is not about no meat eating. That's not the rule. That's not the reg. The reg is about what? Being, we could say, ahimsa, being non-violent. But even that is still a negative definition. Don't be violent. Why don't give that a positive expression? Be loving. Be compassionate, be kind. And why stop there? Why not play out the full implications of the rule? Be as loving as you can. That's very different from no meat eating. <laughs> That's the actual rule. Be as loving as you can. It's not about not meat eating. That's something that will help in that. But <laughs> the actual rule, expression of the rule in a very sensitive way is be as loving as And that's more difficult. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> but that's more beautiful also. And just don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Watch out for just conceiving your practice in terms of don'ts. Mm -hmm. What do you do? I don't do this, I don't do this, and I don't do that. But what do you do? I don't do this, and I don't do this, and I don't do this. It's like, my gosh, you are such a negative person. <laughs> yeah. And Bhakti is so positive, it's ultra positive, but sometimes we choose to see it in terms of what not to do. It's like, that's not very becoming, basically. Thank you for this discussion. It's something I've been struggling with, is like the rules and the love and the offering and how, because I recognize we need, we need some structure and some rhythm. These things are important. But I guess my question is that I've been struggling with recently is, when you've already approached the rules, taken on the rules, like initiation, especially conception of it is very rule-based. It's like mm -hmm. to be initiated means I'm going to follow certain rules. I'm already following certain rules in terms of the regular principles. And then I'm kind of explicitly or implicitly understood to be agreeing to follow certain rules of sudden practice that are pretty specific. And so I think for a lot of us, at least for myself, we take on these practices and these rules we're going to follow, but for the, the wrong reasons, with the wrong understanding. Maybe we do understand theoretically, because that's not the actual motivation what we're really following. We're doing it so we look good, please people, so we feel like we're okay. Not to go to hell, <laughs> not to lose human form of life. Not to go to the deepest hell. 
โอเคทาลาทาลาราสตาลาโนตพาทาไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ Make it absolute, and everything was a hoax, and everything was in vain. I go to my depressive corner, and it's like as you said the other eating chips only. <laughs> That was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, to begin with, I will say it's it, there is a place to celebrate that discovery, as as embarrassing and painful as it may be. So I think that's part of the acknowledgement of the of, of the epiphany you had. Okay, I've been doing that for the wrong reasons, but great, you are realizing that. You know, so many people are doing that for the wrong reasons, thinking they are doing that for the right reasons, and imposing that on others. So you follow. So it's it's an awakening. On some level, again, maybe still I have to learn how to do that for the right reason. But just wow, I'm realize I'm becoming aware of this layer of well, dysfunction, so to say, or whatever. I will make a big party to celebrate that, mm -hmm. no? <laughs> so to say. No, I'm saying that because sometimes we don't celebrate that. We just still become embarrassed because it's not for the wrong reasons. I'm wrong. Still, I'm wrong. Still, it's not the perfect way. Yes, I know, but <laughs> be a little kind with yourself and celebrate the discovery, so to say. No? So I will begin with that. No? Give some time, as we need time to grieve, we need time to celebrate, even what we are grieving <laughs> in this connection. <laughs> so we maybe cry, oh my gosh, for the wrong reasons, but kijai, no? I'm I'm becoming aware of that. I'm becoming, and you can no longer return after that awareness. To doing the things in the wrong way, it's not possible, I and mean, it's too much. If you have some level of integrity, you cannot go back and and do it in the in the same old way. It, it's like betrayal of yourself. And what like what I mentioned in my book is, at least for me, my personal, uh, so to say, psychology or integrity. There's nothing worse than betraying yourself. Nothing worse than betraying yourself. At the end of the day, you know that you're. You know what you should be doing. You are not doing it, and you are like keeping a performance, the facade. Oh my gosh, that's hell. That's hell. That's patala below that. <laughs> so, I don't have a magical formula. Like this is what you have to do, and in a weekend you are already following for the right reasons. It's again, it's a transition, as we talked yesterday. 
and it may take time because again there was one was so much embedded into certain way of doing the thing that now you are discovering that was not correct but maybe we are not yet glimpsing the correct way fully and, and entering into that but i will say be patient with that transition and try to of course to get insects and, and proximity with with situations people that that you feel okay they are like more Sarah Grahi than me in following this. They are more naturally embracing the spirit of the law, so to say. And I think by proximity, it can become epidemic and I can be influenced by that and gradually realize, oh, mm. Mm, that's for that. Again, they're following the rules from for a totally different place. So as simple as that sounds, I think that's that's what works. No, it's, it's, like, it's like a new relationship you're developing with the rules so to say no? so it's like rediscovering the rules like rediscovering a person like like establishing a new relationship with a person it takes time it's not just like press the button and we are there no? so give time give time to yourself because if not it's it can be a part of that uh, I'm not, i don't know in your case but sometimes this neurotic spirit of okay, i have to follow the rule in this way and now it's I have to learn how to follow the rule correctly. And you still carry the same spirit of pressure and neurosis. Like, okay, I have to do it right now. I was following the rules in this wrong way before to be right, to look right. Now I realize I'm a mess and I'm doing it wrongly. So I have to quickly learn how to do it correctly. So everyone likes me and, and it still is the same pattern. <laughs> no? So now you want to follow correctly. So you are doing things for the right reason and everything and thinks how nice you are. So part of the transition is to discover, oh, probably sometimes these impulses come on. No, it's not from that place that I want to follow the rule. Oh, it's not from that place. <laughs> so when you mentioned that when the guru passed, there was a year mm. that there was allowed to grieve. Mm. And especially following up that exercise we did yesterday is how whenever we're in that space of dissolution and transformation, it feels like, oh, I have to now be in the next stage. And hearing you today helped me feel like, oh, I'm allowed to have space to dissolve and transform. And that's good. Like that's actually, I'm supposed to, that's supposed to take time. That's. Yeah. Like, yeah like we were talking with Tamal in Alaska, the term time alchemy. Now you have to allow time to perform its alchemy its function its transformation i mean that takes time it's just about being aware of how reality operates <laughs> and krishna has, says in the gita i'm time personified so also you try to embrace those periods of uncertainty but unfolding and feeling okay krishna is time and in this time that i'm giving he is creating alchemy in me he's transforming me so hey, impatience is a big thing to work on we are generally so impatient. We want things, especially in the society we live in and the dynamics, immediacy, immediacy, immediacy. And we lose the taste for keeping the pace with how the things naturally unfold and evolve and there are time periods for grieving, for everything. Yeah, one way of worshiping Krishna is respecting those time periods, his time. So honor time, respect time, allow time to perform the function. <laughs> yeah. It's 10.10. 10. Where is Devamala? 
What did he say? He's starting lunch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, no, I, He's I was not waiting. joking. Okay, no, because I remember at 10 it was supposed to be breakfast and it's 10 10. But also, no, no, my point is I haven't seen yet someone bringing the offering. So I don't know if I should continue or should stop. The offering is there. Okay. So, what? One more question while the offering is done? Sure. Yeah, I don't want to interrupt the whole. I was trying out this fungibility of rules. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> never occurred to me before. <laughs> the rules are holding me back, Maharaj. <laughs> I'm kidding. Please. <laughs> Be free. So, like, you were mentioning this point of one guru, several disciples, and somehow, I mean, I'm coming from South India, mm. and so... One of the hardest things to explain to my parents when practicing bhakti was like, why do you have to give this to everybody? Like, what's the, <laughs> what's the need, right? Like, around us, there are so many pious families. They're all going to the temple, mm. like, in their, in their head. Mm. And I was like, no, Krishna consciousness is the need of the hour. Mm. And it was until I met, like, evangelical Christians, I realized... Mm. Until then, I didn't realize what my parents were trying to say. Mm. I'm trying to understand <laughs> how, how important this, this jivadaya is, uh, you know, because it seems to be overemphasized in mm. our societies. Mm. Saved the world in 18 days. So I feel like a lot of problem comes out from this, no, we have to do it fast. There's yeah. less time for as many people. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Each of your question again deserves a separate retreat and seminar for sure. So. <laughs> let's see, let's see. Yeah, as I like to mention, I mentioned in my book also, I one section called Radical Inreach, and I mentioned we are we speak about outreach, but the outreach has to be in concordance with our inreach. So I mean, we want to take over the world, but how much of our own inner world has been taken over by Christian consciousness. So sometimes we want to save the world as an excuse not to save ourselves also. And I want to share some thoughts on this. It's way more difficult to save yourself than to save the world, in one sense. I mean, you cannot save the world if you are not saved yourself, but you can try to save the world. So you don't try it, you have, don't have to save yourself. <laughs> So I'm totally in favor of Jivadai. I'm not contradicting that by saying this. I'm saying that for actual Jivadai to take place, you have to be having Jivadai on your own Jiva, so to say. <laughs> you have to show mercy on yourself by saving yourself. And saving not as a selfish project, because in Bhakti, if you want to save yourself, it's not about saving myself, actually. It's about what we already talked, which is our goal which is not selfish, which is not separate, separatistic. So, <clears throat> yeah, I personally, I know that it, this is my opinion. Not everyone will have that opinion, but I'm not so much about, I mean, I, I'm not against sharing the message, of course, but not to the point of, uh, I mean, Jiva Doi has, can take many forms, that's my point also. It's not that just Jiva Doi go and distribute books and make more devotees. That's one expression of it. But for example, for me, in one sense, in one sense, being more substantial, and Prabhupada himself said that many times. He said, 
I prefer one devotee that remains a devotee than a new devotee. Mm -hmm. Follow my point. So, in the name of making new people, what's going on with the ones who already are there? Mm -hmm. Because, and, and I'm, that's connected with this sometimes this system of getting newer and newer and newer people lands to neglect those who already are in and they eventually leave. But since there are always new people coming, <laughs> there's always someone showing up in the party, so to say. So we have something to do with those people. But eventually, <laughs> no. but there are always new coming. Hopefully, you know. <laughs> but the goal of life is just that people become pure lovers of God. And that takes time to craft each project in that direction. So... And a proper many times say also it's time to boil the milk. Sometimes he say, let's stop opening temples. Let's concentrate on boiling the milk in, in his way, which means like let's try to condense what we already have with the members we have. I mean, he didn't say stop preaching at all, but there, there are levels of emphasis in all the things. So again, as I mentioned this day, trying to save others can be a very noble, evasive device <laughs> to neglect your own project and the progress of those who are already practicing. So, codependency. Sorry? It's codependency. Can be a form of codependency. Because you're yeah. so concerned about yeah. what other people are yeah. going to do or coming yeah. to do that you're not paying attention to the work that you need to do on mm -hmm. yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's more complex to guide someone who is already devoting to all the nuances of the bhakti journey to the point of all the detail your ultimate goal. I mean, that's way more difficult than just bringing newcomers with a very basic generic narrative. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not I'm not condemning that. I'm just saying it's easier and it can be more tempting. Let's emphasize there and keep the numbers coming. There are numbers. It's everything is okay because we have the number. <laughs> but who say that the number warrant is the okay, so to say? No. So so I will try. In my case, I try to. To give more nuanced idea of this idea of Jiva Dai. And, and also Jiva Dai can take other forms as well. Like it has to be, you have to be in a situation where you really you really experience compassion for the other person, whatever whatever that situation is. You know? I appreciate lots of Christian people who really go to people who are sick and dying. And, and that day I met someone in New Jersey. They they have a whole project they go to. They were in Pakistan, they have an earthquake and 20,000 people died. And the whole city was dismantled and they went and reconstructed everything and without wanting to convert anyone. <laughs> they are for, forbidden to do that. So I say, okay, that's good. Uh, so that's an interesting form of Jiva Dai. I'm trying to help you without expecting that you become one of my team. Mm -hmm. Because if not our own conception of Jiva Dai is this one. You have to become a devotee. That's the only way I can show you mercy. <laughs> but what if that doesn't happen. Is there a way of me to express compassion to you? Or I can only show compassion if you eventually join the temple. That's the only way I can. I'll compassion only as long as you can. If not, our lost case. Let's show compassion to someone else. That's not Jiva Dai for me. So I think we need to to expand that idea and, and don't don't think like we need to again take over the world as soon as we can. The more I mean, there are unlimited number of jivas, just in case, no? So don't think that at one point, all of them are on the log and the material creation goes on ruin because there's nobody else to, to I mean, that's what Takur Hari does talk with Mahaprabhu at one point. 
No? He was thinking, oh, my by your Sankirtan and your epidemic influence, everyone will be chanting, everyone will be delivered. So what will happen with material creation? What will happen with Maya Shakti? She will be neglected. That cannot happen. Mahaprabhu said, no, but there are unlimited jivas. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's not a certain amount, and eventually all of them are on that side, and we, we can send this world to the trash folder or trash bin or something. <laughs> They're always that. So, so my point is, if you want to be a bodhisattva, like, okay, I will continue coming here till everyone is saved, good luck. No? Because there will always be someone else. And it's okay if you're willing to be here forever helping people. I have no problem with that. But So I think these things are important to conceive, not to lose compassion, but also to understand all these wider dynamics. No? There was just a, a quick quote I wanted to share in relation to that that I saw the other day on Facebook. Yes. It has good things sometimes. Yes. And it was like, it makes all the difference if I see my neighbor as a potential convert or as someone that God already loves. And that was just really potent to me because I feel like there is, especially in the West, this big like, join our group, join our group. Everything's about teams. Politics, it's about teams. You know, everything's about teams. And, and we lose sight of the radical personalism that's required to like really please Krishna in the hearts of all that he already loves. So I just, that was one quote that I really felt stuck with me. Because sometimes with, you know, preaching is, I think it can be a very good thing. And I also think it can be a harmful thing in some ways. You know, like you were saying, they went and they built, rebuilt this city, but they weren't saying you have to believe in God for this, you know, but you have situations where people go and all like, We'll give you clean water, but you have to join our church, you know? And it's like this really sad and exploitative kind of like attempt to share God. But it... It's manipulation. Yeah. 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 Or sometimes you help people only to feel a sense of, I'm, I'm a good person mm. because I'm helping you. And I'm superior. You need help. I'm giving, providing the help. You create this hierarchy of ego, so to say. So, so Yeah. Preaching or giving a book externally doesn't necessarily mean that you are doing it for the from the correct place internally. <laughs> so I, I appreciate your point in terms of jivadai because jivadai means being compassionate with someone other, and being compassionate means I'm showing unconditional help, grace. Unconditional grace means it doesn't matter if you convert or not. It, that's not on the map. That may happen as a byproduct not as my first and foremost intention you know? because again as we say yesterday what drives me to want to convert other people again it's universal love or it's just like a neurosis of getting more and more numbers to feel we're doing it correctly because so many people is joining i mean there are so many crazy groups that have way more people than us that means that they're doing better because of the big number I and mean, number is nothing now, numbers now we, we are after intimate circles i will say and that's a little bit in connection to today's topic which somehow i went we went into three thousand other topics which is perfect i'm okay but for me in big part of future of, of gaudiya vaishnavism ministers is, is is like small groups even if big institutions are still there but the development of small groups of intimate swajati as sadhu sangha, what Rupa Goswami say, like-minded, heart-minded, like-hearted people sharing, even if it's in diff from different affiliations, 
like here. I mean, most of you maybe may be affiliated with this gun. I've never been, but I'm totally aligned with all of you and connected with all of you. Like I always say when I was talking with Deva Madhava, he will tell me, there is ISKCON and there is my ISKCON, he will tell me. <laughs> and I will ask him, I am part of your ISKCON? He said, yes, Marat. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's for me the idea. No? I mean, the, the future for me in this term is like close, intimate groups where we can share with one another in, in very like-minded, like like-hearted spirit. And institutions may be there doing their job and maintaining structures. And I'm not against institutions, but they have this ups and downs. Again, no need to over-absolutize institution. That's institutionalism, and that's not healthy. No? So, so yeah, I appreciate that the possibility for intimate connection with people like you. I wanted just to also express that at one point. So thank you so much for giving me your your association and your company. I feel very fortunate. So, okay, still the offering is going on. The Omar is continuing with lunch over there. One more question. I think you're just one. You already raised your hand a few times with your permission. Not to Both. Someone can <laughs> some, adopt Chatur Butch. Four arms to defeat Jainitai and I will. Anya, one question? Yeah. Yeah. And Deva Madhava is coming to pick the offering. So that's the last question before lunch or breakfast. I don't know at this point. Brunch. Brunch. You have this here. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All yeah, right. Sorry. It's not really a question, it's, it's an appreciation. Okay. Okay. Um, I had, I've been following your work on YouTube for a long time and um, feeling like connecting with you through your book. And I had this light bulb go off of like, for me and maybe others might appreciate this sort of summary of like, why do I appreciate your teaching so much, you know? And it's like, oh, the word relaxation came to mind, especially um, in connection with what um, Sri Rada was saying, like feeling fear about losing your human form or what happens, you know. And then with um, Rindavani about the rules and things, and it's like, I feel like you're tuning into this flow of explaining things in a way that brings relaxation to the body, mind, and heart. And that's the place I feel, and I'm new to Bhakti, um, but it feels to me that that's the place where bhakti can really flourish is relaxation because if we're tense about things we're tense about trying to fit in and we're tense about trying to follow the rules or we're tense about what happens in my other lifetime we've got all these fears and doubts swirling around that tension like is not compatible with this like opening of the heart or this flowing towards krishna so that's that's my perception of kind of the overview of what you shared, uh, at least what I've experienced so far, is this relaxation. So I just want to extend that appreciation to you. Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, I'm committed to your experience, and hopefully I can properly honor that because, yeah, yeah. The opposite of faith is fears in one sense. No, I mean, we are trying to promote fear and fear, faith and confidence and, and this type of positive values. So in the name of a tradition of faith and love, fear is, is a norm. I mean, that goes, that goes against our ideal. So we need to yeah, figure out our process in a way that is 
user-friendly, basically, and sustainable, because we don't want to be devoted for a few years. We want to be devoted for eternity. <laughs> so this is an, an, another phase of sustainability, you know, how to make my practice sustainable. We are Vaishnav. Vaishnav is worship Vishnu. Vishnu is the god of sustain, sustainance, sustainability. And sustaining something doesn't mean to keep the thing always the same in the same modes. In order to sustain a relationship, <clears throat> it has to go. It's easy to, it's relatively difficult to create something. It's easier to destroy what you created. <laughs> but the most difficult thing is to maintain it. Because maintaining is always growing. You cannot maintain something in the same place. And maintaining our spiritual project basically means maintaining a relationship we are developing with Krishna, with everything else with him in the center so uh, so yeah that's our task as Vaishnavs maintenance sustainability how we can make our bhakti project sustainable you can imagine 23 years how many devotees I've seen coming how many devotees I've seen go I mean I can be crying for the next month over them just because of that no and, and again, this, that's not the goal. Have, have lots of people coming and have lots of people leaving. <laughs> but keep lots of people coming so nobody notices the leaving. No, that's not, that's not the idea. Try to cover the leaving with more people coming. No. <clears throat> Try to make those who are coming to continue arrive. <clears throat> How we continue arrive to Krishna consciousness. We already arrived, but we have to continue arriving deeper, deeper layers. So. So yeah, that, that has been the attempt. That's my personal attempt. If that and naturally it may extend to others, but that's my main, my personal struggle. I want to remain being a devotee for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be Vaishnava after 30, 40 years and for the wrong reasons. I mean, that will be the deepest self-betrayal I can perform to myself. So I prefer to kill myself in front of you right now <laughs> instead of doing that. No? So, so, so that's a, the, the healthy concern, not the neurosis, but a healthy concern. I want to continue for the right reasons every single day, choosing to remain as a Vaishnava for the right reasons. And, and there are so many layers of those right reasons. Again, it's not that I already got to the right reason. Tomorrow is, there will be a new level of depth to that and so on and so forth. So yeah, here we are trying to remind each other how we can continue together from the proper place for the right reasons. So thank you so much for for you reminding me all those things with your presence, with your words. We'll stop here. We'll have Prashad and probably the next meeting. Let's see what the boss says over there in the kitchen. But Dev Madhava, we are ready for breakfast. And probably the next meeting will be a little later. Or at which time do you think? Uh, we'll start the next meeting. Uh, it was scheduled for 11, so we'll do 11.30. Okay. And if also everybody could tidy up their cabins and pack into the cars, that kind of thing. Technically, we're supposed to be out of the cabins by 11. I don't think there's any like uh, harassment that's going to come per se, but just have all that done before you come back up here. I asked if you could remove the sheets and bedding from the beds and just put it all in a pile. Yeah, just throw it all in a pile like an Airbnb kind of thing. Just put all the bedding in a pile of sheets, pillows. And so stuff. we have an hour for breakfast and that. Do you think it's enough time? Yeah. Mm, no. <laughs> 11.45? Uh, it's Kitchery. It's not a seven-course meal. Okay. So, uh, 11.45.
Okay, Sriman Mahaprabhu ki jai, Gaur Bhaktavrindu ki jai, Gaur Pramanand Hari, Vaisha Kalpataru Vishya Kripasandu Hiri, Vachapapita, Pavanishri Vaishnavi Dhyam. Ananta Koti Vaishnavrindu ki jai, 